Hello and welcome to our show. You are listening to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. Twice a month, we sit down with guests to have conversations about the intersection of faith and social justice. I am April Johnson, Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry, and I am your host. Welcome to What's the Tea with Reconciliation Ministry. I am Reverend April Johnson, and I am your host. Uh, Today, we want to welcome our guest, the Reverend Dr. David Anderson Hooker, who is currently with the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Dr. Hooker, and so great to have you with us. Will you... um, Give us just a few words of introduction of yourself as we get started. Uh, let's see, I'm ordained clergy in the United Church of Christ um, into, I guess, moving far into my second decade of ordained ministry, but I'm also a mediator for the last 35 years and um, focused a lot on community and both in the United States, but also in other parts of the world, looking at community building and post-conflict, post-disaster community building, uh, and trying to shape identities that support an equitable future. So there's a lot in there, but that's kind of, in a sense, what it is that I do. Great. I would add that the synergy that I see between the work that you do and the work that we do for Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is in this area of community, uh, Mm -hmm. some ways community organizing. It's not necessarily what we both focus on, but what we equip folks to do. Um, But I also see uh, some uh, synergy in the area of mediation and peace building where we, where we see the need for that. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about um, how you understand the work of community building with um, the work of the church. So the thing that I talk a lot about with regard to the work of the church is that peace, trauma, conflict exists kind of in a nesting way, like the Russian nesting dolls. So individuals, relationships, communities, regions, nations, internationally, they all manifest or reflect conflict and uh, trauma. And those conflicts and traumas have emerged. Some are more immediate. Some have emerged over a decade, over a generation, over an era, over an age, there's kind of a nesting for them. Mm -hmm. And in order to respond to those, there's a nesting. So you have to be able to respond immediately for the decade, for the generation, for the era, for the age. And there are very few entities that have both permission and authority to operate 
at all of those levels, which is why the church has to really be involved in this work, because very few other than the church are talking about the now and the eternal, are talking about what happens a decade from now, a generation from now, and also what happens at every level from the individual to the rise of the nations. And so the church is, has a really, they're well positioned to play well in this area, but not always well equipped. So tell us about processes and methods that you would propose to uh, my audience, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, in order to um, live into or to move into this authority um, and permission that say the church has to do this work. So I think that the church is positioned um, to do work. The equipping is going to require some deeper understanding of the role of narrative, the place of trauma, and how organizations actually have the capacity to transform narratives, transform trauma, transform systems. And so I think that that's really the place where the church could benefit from learning a little bit more and being really intentional about it because the organizational, the connectional character of the church allows it to have influence at the local, at the national, regional, global levels. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, very exciting for me because the work that uh, we have done as Reconciliation Ministry, at least for the last 19 to 20 years, has been identifying uh, the systemic nature of the way racism manifests in the life of the church and also in our communities. And it mm -hmm. took probably that long to begin to unlearn some of the narratives uh, that we have learned to not be able to identify, that, that cover up the, the way the systems work, right? And so we want to impose uh, a story that is individual or individually owned or individually acted, acted on. But what I hear you saying is that the work really will be to uncover uh, what those narratives are. Maybe even, um, I heard this on, on television last night, it's becoming common uh, language now, uh, our origin stories, right? Which is the work that we've been doing is walking people through um, what we call a wall of history to kind of relearn or unlearn some of the narratives that skip out the whole, skip the whole story Right. And the work that we have to do moving forward is to be able to, I saw this in your book, Transforming Community Conferencing, is to learn how to identify those narratives, but also then to develop new narratives and I guess on a process to lead to what you would call a preferred narrative. So one of the things about every choice that we make, every day, every moment, every breath, we're presented with choices. And the choices that we make reflect the narratives that are organizing our lives, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we talk about those choices in terms of stories, but the stories actually conform to broader narratives. Mm -hmm. If, so you don't unlearn a narrative, you replace it, like you're learning it, but then you have to replace it. It's like any other habit. 
you, you don't break a habit, you replace a habit. And so we have to identify what are our preferred narratives and then to be able to name for ourselves what are the relationships, resources, structures that have to shift in order to make this preferred narrative the habitual narrative? And so the church has habits that conform to particular societal patterns that reproduce, that produce and reproduce inequities along gender lines, along racial lines, along class lines. And so in order to undo that, we have to know what those are so even when we learn the history, the history is told from multiple perspectives because people experience that history differently based on the narratives that they were living in and the trajectory that that narrative made for their lives. And so unveiling it, it's not just the origin story, but it's the interpretive narrative that we have to really unveil and then choose preferred narratives and decide together how we want to live into, how we become accountable to, how we become habitual within the new and preferred narratives that we've identified. So it seems to me that what you are describing, and you could um, share with us process. So could you share with me what are the key components of the process that you propose in your book, Transforming Community Conferencing? So when we're, a transformative community conferencing process allows us to gather, we start with this notion it's a very simple idea. People aren't the problem. The problem is the problem. If we can name what the problem is, then we notice how people react to that problem and how that problematic gets really baked into systems and structures and resource distribution. And so we start off just mapping that together and seeing how those problems, problematics differentially impact people's lives, how people react to them differently. And so you'll notice this is a dominant community narrative. But then you also take time to notice that not everything operates according to the dominant narrative. And so then what are some of those unique outcomes that are also in place? We start to name those, and then we can notice that there are at least two, sometimes three, competing narratives existing within a community. And then we ask, do we have a preference between them? If one of them creates a problem story for most people or for many people, it predicts uh, inequity, it predicts a hierarchy in terms of people's value of their lives, and there are other narratives that don't do that, then would we have a choice? Would we prefer to live in one versus the other? And then if we prefer it, what would it take to make it a habit? So what, you have to make a choice. This is the thing, once you've uncovered it, you have to make a choice, which is why I love this time of year. Um, we just finished Juneteenth, and we're going to July the 4th, right? Mm -hmm. Both of those, people change their lives based on declarations, not based on a change of condition, mm -hmm. but they declared in the moment that they were going to be different. And then they organized their relationships, their resources, their structures in support of a new vision. Now, the Declaration of Independence didn't include everybody, and a lot of the construction of the church didn't always include everybody and it had some antiquated understandings of the different differential values of people based on their identity. And so you have to go back at different points, unpack that, and notice if we're actually creating a declaration in which everybody has equal access to the benefits of this realm of God, how do we do that not in the 
by and by in the far and beyond, but how do we construct structures, relationships? How do we distribute resources here so that people can benefit here and have, and their identities don't predict the likelihood of the value and the quality of their lives? I think that's very helpful because Sometimes we can get really stuck in the conceptual, you know, around, particularly around narrative. Yeah. Um, but to have real examples of narratives that we've all bought into, right? Narratives that actually we structure our lives around. Um, and yeah. what you're asking us then to do is to dig deeper um, into those narratives and that that has to be done collectively is I believe is a, a real challenge and yet an opportunity as well uh, for the community as well as the church. Uh, to right. I really am, I'm really inspired by your optimism that the church understands that it has both permission and authority to do that work. Mm -hmm. That's um, mm -hmm. very encouraging. So tell me this, can you share with um, our listeners a particular institution or institutional success story where you have um, applied or um, implemented this transforming community conferencing process? So one of the things that we've done, like for instance, I really love the work that happened in Greensboro, North Carolina, where it wasn't one individual institution, but we noticed if we get people from across racial and class and linguistic and ethnic boundaries who, because of the way that the, the town is structured, their lives are such that they can live independently. They don't really have to interact with one another, which is how we've structured many of our communities, which is how we've structured our churches quite often, the only time they have to get together is at General Assembly. Otherwise, they can go off and live their own lives. And so when they're doing that, they, they experience the problematics differently. And so they name it and think that it only has to do with them. What we were able to do in Greensboro is get people from multiple sectors together to both name the dominant narratives, but also identify a preferred narrative, and then to figure out what needed to happen in a variety of places so that the systems, the structures, and the resources would begin to change. But one of the, one of the clear examples inside of the larger Greensboro Counter Stories project was this notion of getting police officers and community together to ask what is necessary in order for everyone in this area to feel safe, protected, and respected. Just that question, because it shapes, like police officers say why they, when they don't feel safe and how they react with force and extra surveillance when they don't feel safe. But they're doing that creates a spiral of both precarity and a sense of unsafety for certain communities. Mm -hmm. And so then their reaction to the problematic creates a reaction to the problematic. And so all it can do is spiral in ways that aren't productive for anyone. And so it's not a matter of getting rid of the police. It's not a matter of being able to eliminate or arrest your way out of and towards safety. It's how do we create a space where our misinformation uh, is being used to create a, a fear that heightens this cycle. And so then we have to work on reduction of fear and misinformation and not reducing the people or getting rid of uh, the police necessarily. So, so that was, I think, the beginning of an example, and the thing is, shifting narrative is a long process. Transforming community conferencing 
leads to and sets up the foundation for a process, for an extended process. We got into these narratives, into these situations because of narratives, some of which have gone on since the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, and so that's baked into our system. So you don't undo it overnight, but you can set a new trajectory that gives us the possibility and the reason the church has to be involved is because it was here before the doctrine of discovery. It has carried that theology with it throughout. And if it's going to do anything to undo it, they have to be involved. We have to be involved in the undoing, in the recreating of a new trajectory that's not based on that hierarchy of values that was baked into our theology. I really love that particular um, assessment of the church being here before the doctrine uh, because it's actually very loaded um analogy but right. it's also one of the one of the governance items that we worked on in our last gathering and so there'll be a report on where we are in terms of our own repudiation uh. of doctrine but more importantly the thing i like about that and will probably lead to one of my final questions and that and that is when we learn about the doctrine and the church's role and perpetuating the doctrine, we realize that none of us escape from being conscripted into the narrative of the doctrine, right? right? None right. of us, race, creed, or color, you know, nation of origin does not escape this. So um, the nerd in me loves that, you know, um, I don't see it as problematic. I see it as an opportunity, and yet it's loaded, and it's mm -hmm. loaded with what you would call problematics. Right. Um, but for me, it's because of the work that I do, it's an opportunity for the church to do the critical self-examination that the narratives prevent us from doing. So, right. um, so what I want to ask you then, uh, knowing that we're going to do some talking about the doctrine at, in general at the General Assembly, what can uh, guests at the Reconciliation Ministry Breakfast uh, anticipate um, hearing from you um, during the time together on Tuesday morning? I have no idea. Preacher's prerogative. I, you know, it, it, it could shape differently. I, we're certainly going to talk about narrative somehow. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about processes of, you know, healing and wholeness or something like that. And we may even, uh, even as we were speaking, I just thought, huh, the doctrine of discovery, that may be a place to lean in. Like, what might we discover in the way that narratives have shaped our lives and how are they shaping the impossibility of the indwelling of the realm of God and what might we do otherwise to um, discover a new way out. So we may be spending some time considering this doctrine of discovery, who knows? Right. Well, I appreciate that. And even, even that, I believe, will create some anticipation, some excited um, anticipation uh, for our guests, uh, just so you know, this is, uh, we are expecting um, almost a standing room only. We've already expanded uh -huh. this twice, so nothing to be concerned about or, you know, that um, to get nervous about. Um, these are these are allies, and, but these are people that are ready to, to um, put on um, a new way of living into the realm of God. So I'm excited. Well, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited about having you there. I'm grateful for our time together today and for you sharing all the possibilities of what all of us can learn um, within the Christian Church of Disciples of Christ, within our sister church, the United Church of Christ, but in anyone who is um, involved in this work of transforming um, communities through narrative. I'm really excited about what this um, 
shared work can do um, for our church and our community. So thank you so much, Dr. Hooker. I really appreciate you being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being with you all later in the month. Well, that's our show for today. Stay connected with us on social media. We're at DLC Reconcile on Twitter, Reconciliation Ministry on Facebook, and on our website at reconciliationministry.org. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening.